Hello, I'm Scott Miller, one of the Trade Guys, and this is a bonus episode of The Trade Guys. Recently, Bill and I were guests on a podcast called The Trade Splaining Podcast, hosted by Ardian Malibasiri and Robert Skidmore of the International Trade Center in Geneva, Switzerland. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. So let's just get started. Maybe you could both tell us a little bit about yourselves. How did you get into uh, your respective fields and sort of what's the journey been like? What's what's changed most? Well, Bill was a little more thoughtful about it. Mine was, I got into the trade as a total accident. So I was a career employee of Procter & Gamble. I was an executive in the operations side of the business for about 17 years in manufacturing and marketing. And I just uh, returned from an assignment in Canada and I was, I was looking for some something interesting to do with the experience I'd had. And uh, Procter & Gamble, which had a four-person Washington office had two openings and they chose to bring somebody from headquarters who was me and along with hiring a Washington insider who wound up, he and I worked together for the next 17 years, but it was a great run. So I, I moved to Washington really for a short assignment and that was in 1995 and I just stayed, but it happened in 1995. The issues that my, my employer was facing were international in nature. The company had expanded very quickly as, as the markets opened up in the, in the late eighties and early nineties. And by 95, we were having good results and serious problems. And so I came to Washington to deal with the problems. And uh, so I worked both the domestic side of international trade and economics. That is, I was a lobbyist. I managed issues through the Congress and the administration, was a cleared advisor to the U.S. administration for a number of years. And then I also did a lot of diplomacy or commercial diplomacy with uh, our business units and government officials outside the U.S. So I did that until 20, 2012, and uh, I retired from P&G and unretired six weeks later to join uh, CSIS. And so for the past nine years, I've been at CSIS, first running the international business program and now working on executive education. Excellent. And Bill, how about yourself? My, my arrival was was also accidental, but uh, a very different path. I had gone to graduate school and Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies at the time. So I was a foreign policy person. So I went to work on the Hill. And after having one boss retire on me, which happens on the Hill, and then another boss fire me, which also happens on the Hill, since there's no no tenure, I ended up spending the next uh, 14 years working for John Hines, who was the senator from Pennsylvania. I worked for him from the day he came to the Senate till the day he died, sadly. And he hired me to do foreign policy. But what we both discovered after a year or so was that he wasn't on the Foreign Relations Committee. All of his committee assignments really were economic, banking and, and finance, which has jurisdiction over trade. So there was a lot to do. And Basically, I ended up doing trade, and eventually we hired somebody else to do foreign policy. And the wonderful thing about trade is that no problems are ever solved. Yes. You know, they go on and on forever. When Airbus is in its 17th year, I was, did a thing yesterday on Canadian lumber goes back to the 80s. These things are eternal, so it's, it's permanent employment, and it, it turned out fine. I did it in Congress for really 20 years and then went into the executive branch because one of my, one of my fields is, is technology transfer and export controls because that's something that that Senator Hines uh, was in, deeply involved in because of the committees he was on. And so I did that for the Clinton administration. And then I got to know Scott much better after that. The 2000 election introduced me to the private sector since my guys lost. And I began to run a trade association. And uh, Is that Ralph Nader? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Procter & Gamble was one of the members. So Scott was one of my members, and I did that for 15 years and then followed the, the fundamental principle of, of uh, trade of association work, which is get out before they throw you out. And I did. And then I 
ended up here at CSIS, where I'm a newbie, and Scott is by far the senior person. That's excellent. You, so you worked for John Hines. Uh, I guess the pay might not have been that great, but you probably had lifetime supply of ketchup. <laughs> First guy to think of that joke. That's the second person to think of that joke, because he laughed. So guys, as Artie was saying, we often have a kind of Geneva-centric view, but Geneva waxes and wanes in terms of its relevance, but it's doing a lot of waning lately. So and partially, the reason we want to talk to you guys is because we want to hear a little bit of the perspective from, from Washington, but also from outside Geneva. And one of the questions we see now, obviously under Lighthizer and so on, the idea of free trade for free trade's sake and the idea of, of efficiency went down in terms of its, of its currency. And now we see that we're not sure that's changed much. And we read in the New York Times that the, the idea of free trade as a concept in its own right, that even Democrats used to defend, is now under threat. So is, is the idea of free trade as a concept kind of over in Washington? And if it is, is that a good thing? And, and what's replaced it? Well, look, Washington is probably, at least in my experience, has always been more about reciprocity than it's been about, about true free trade. We've had the occasional leader who believed in it and acted on it. The two I would name recently is... Paul Ryan, when he was chairman of the Ways and Means Committee and when he was Speaker of the House, was a heart, heartfelt, strong free trader. He believed in the core principles articulated by Adam Smith, and, and he operated that way. And so he's, but he's, he was rare even within the Republican Party. And George W. Bush, as President Bush, actually put political capital behind his beliefs in uh, trade as a, as a way to improve lives. So, they, but Washington as a whole tends not to be committed in that way. They're, they they like fairness, they like reciprocity, they like opening markets. I, I've approached it a little bit differently. Uh, sort of big picture, it's sort of Leninist, two steps forward, one step backward. Uh, it trade, support for trade, support for globalization, kind of uh, waxes and wanes. I think the fundamental thing that, that I'm always reminded of is that the tools that enable trade, which have been enormous reductions in the cost of, of transportation and communications over the last 30 years, they haven't gone away and they're not going to be uninvented. So the tools are there and it's just a question of the extent to which people want to take advantage of them. We have an administration right now that's focusing on domestic economic recovery and wants to focus on, on, on restoring the domestic manufacturing base to the extent it can. But the reality is that the United States is, it's a we're a mature, slow-growth economy. We may do 6% this year, which is what Biden was talking about the other day, but that's because we're recovering from a terrible year, and that's to be expected. Everybody's going to do well for some part of this year. But in normal years, 3% is really good for us, and the reality is our population is stable. If you saw our, our census that came out on Monday, we've, we grew 7.4%, which is the slowest growth in more than, more than 50 years. And the reality is economically, if we want to grow, we've got to trade. 96% of the world's consumers are outside our borders, and we're not going to see rapid growth unless we engage globally. So I think it's inevitable, and yeah, maybe now it's a step back, but there will be two steps forward in the future at some point, and and Biden will figure it out. I mean, they're not they're not dummies in the administration, and I think they're they're preoccupied now with other issues, and that will slow down their global economic engagement. But they'll come back to it. Every conversation he has with a, a global leader. They bring up trade. So you mentioned that, in your view, it's inevitable. I mean, I think most people, especially in our field of work, would agree with you, but a lot of people don't agree with you, right? Do you think that is because we've done a poor job or not as good a job as we should have in communicating these benefits and why trade is, is important outside of the beltway or, or the global beltway, if you will? 
Well, we try. I think one, one, the politics of it in the United States is there's a, there's a decent amount of cognitive dissonance. If you ask people a general question, what do you think about trade? You generally get a positive answer. If you break that down and say, does trade cost you jobs? You probably get a majority who says yes. And you, there are five other, does, does offshoring bad for the economy? Yes. If you break it down, the typical answer is exports are good, imports are bad. So people are capable of holding contradictory views at the same time. And I think at least in in our country, one of the reasons is level of intensity. Go back to what Scott said. If you ask people, is trade a good thing, you get right now mid-60% of the population saying yes. If you ask a different question, which is, what are the three most important problems the country has? Trade is number eight. It went down. Climate change had been number eight. It's gone up to number seven. The top three are always terrorism, the economy, and healthcare. And they take turns being number one. I think right now the economy is probably number one. Trade is down at the bottom, so it's not a decisive factor when people vote. It doesn't frame the it doesn't frame the public views. People have opinions on it, but if their politician is has is in a different place, that doesn't cause them to vote against him. They'll vote against him or her because of their views on on the big three. So I think the other problem we've got right now is the administration is conflating benefits with, with distribution of benefits. If you listen to Ambassador Tai, the whole conversation is we want a trade policy that is helps workers, that helps the middle class, where the benefits accrue to workers and not to CEOs and the big companies. I, I think she's right about that. I mean, I, I don't, and, and one of our, our problems here in the United States is growing inequality. And it's a fair point that the benefits of trade have not been distributed equitably. But I think there's a difference between trade agreements, which create benefits, uh, and other government policies, which distribute the benefits. I mean, what we sort of learned is that, that a rising tide hasn't lifted all the boats, despite what President Kennedy said 60 years ago, the, the billionaires' yachts float free and do just fine, but the workers' yachts are, are not the you know, work, the workers' rowboats are stuck in the mud. But you don't solve that problem by not having trade. Trade creates the benefits that you want to distribute, and then you use other elements of government policy, whether it's tax policy or adjustment policy, to make sure the benefits are distributed. I mean, if I were going to criticize the Biden administration is, is they're focusing entirely on distribution and not on creating the benefits. If you're not creating more benefits, there's not going to be any more to distribute. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's, that rings true. The conversations we're in, it often seems like the conversations about trade or not trade, which mm-hmm. of course is absurd, but it one get one gets gets trapped in that. But Scott, did you want to come in on that? Well, I just wanted to say your first question was, do we do a poor job of selling the benefits of trade? The answer is unequivocally, yes. Look, I was in consumer products marketing. You always start with the benefit. When you're talking to a consumer, why should they buy your product? Trade people never start with the benefits, okay? The benefits are longer, happier lives, better living standards, economic growth, however you want to frame it. I mean, and those are things people desire in life. I mean, for me, you'd start with start with 1989. That's when the Berlin Wall fell. About that time, the World Bank said something like 35 or 40% of the people on the planet live below their poverty line, $1.90 a day or whatever it is now, all right? 35%. What is it now? Seven, eight. We'll tick up a little bit because of COVID maybe, but that is the largest reduction of poverty in human history, all right? In 25 years. What caused it? The the liberation and movement of goods, people, ideas, and culture. That's trade and globalization. I mean, now, distribution is another question, and uh, we have problems with Pareto distributions in almost everything we do because talent is not evenly distributed, nor are rewards. And so government policy can affect that. 
but but it's one of those things that we we do a terrible job of before we start complaining about all the problems of trade some some of us free traders need to step up and say look this actually created better lives and when you said distribution of talents not, is uneven was that arty yeah i think that's what he was probably <laughs> well, that, that that's in any field of endeavor I was Frank, thinking, that includes bill i was thinking the pareto distribution and the amount of work done on this podcast yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think eighty twenty would be a would be a good would be a more equitable distribution if we could. So um, I guess the next question we have would be on on Geneva itself. So me and Rob, Rob and I, I should say, are based in Geneva. I've been here for since twenty thirteen, and Rob's, as I said before, since ten years at least. Yeah, long mm-hmm. time. In your view, as based in Washington, do you think Geneva is still relevant? Because we always talk about it as sort of the trade hub, if you will, particularly in the UN system. Catherine Tai has said. The U.S. Trade Representative has said a lot of good things, and but it seems, however, that multilateralism is no longer the main focus of U.S. trade policy. If, do you think? Look, if- it's a good news, bad news story. Here's the good news: about 75% of U.S. trade happens at MFN rates, right? So you, you would look at that and say, if you want to hunt where the ducks are, we're very interested in multilateral trade, in better market access at the MFN levels, because that's how we do business as a country, okay? That's the good news. The bad news is uh, one of utility, is that nothing happens in Geneva. So if you want if you want more attention from the United States, how about let's stop making excuses and do something valuable and important, Okay. Right now on your agenda, fisheries. Fisheries has been on the agenda probably since, well, not since I was a child, but for a long time, 20 years or so. We failed to find agreement in Seattle in 1999 on fisheries subsidies. So we've been failing to find agreement ever since then. And that's one where it's a real serious global commons problem. It really requires cooperation. And before we get into even tougher issues like climate change, we had to demonstrate capability there. So right priority, too many excuses, not enough action. But it's an opportune moment because we've just moved out of the four years of narrative that had every trade deal was a bad deal because my predecessors, all, all they negotiated were bad deals. And so we we're, at, we're past that. And we have a, a confirmed multilateralist in office and uh, who's got a lot of other things to do, by the way, on his, on, by his own declaration. But, it, but there's a moment here that you can start to engender cooperation, but it's going to take action. And I agree with Scott 100% on this. The real test would be fisheries. If they can produce a fish agreement, it's win, win, win. The fish win, which is important. The WTO wins because it, could re- it reestablishes its credibility as capable of deciding something. And I think uh, multilateral cooperation wins. So one of the things we talk a lot about on, on, on this podcast is on trade and inequality. You uh, had alluded to this earlier in one of your answers when we were talking about how we communicate the benefits of trade. Now, uh, maybe we can unpack that a little bit more specifically on your thoughts. I'm thinking specifically the Biden administration has recently been talking loudly about a global minimum corporate tax as a way to sort of balance the the playing field in a way. Is this a type of solution to the problems that people have when we're talking about trade and inequality? Partly one of which I guess is, as we said, we don't communicate it well enough. I think it is. I mean, Scott and I may differ on this. As a longtime Democrat, I'm wholeheartedly in favor of what what Biden wants to do. We've had this odd debate in this country where the Republican Party is adamantly against raising any taxes on anybody, anytime, anywhere, any place. And it's it's a legacy of, of Ronald Reagan's, the government is the enemy and we 
need smaller government theory. And now you've got a president coming back and say, if you look at recent history, if you look at the pandemic, these are not, this is not the kind of problem that somebody can solve by himself. The, there's a role for government, and we've not attended to national problems for a very long time, the biggest one of which is inequality. And it's past time to do that. And I think what he wants to do is, is, is directionally right. I think we can quibble about, about the details. And my wife, who's a CPA and with a tax practice, tells me that some of his specific proposals may, may end up having the opposite effect of what he intends. But I think that in, intentionally, he's moving in the right direction. Tax policy is not the only thing. We have to do a lot more for our workers. I mean, the nature of work is changing. We've got a growing segment of our population that simply does not have skills that fit the current economy. And we need to do a lot more work on reskilling, upskilling, continued edu continuing education, and not certainly for people that are 50 when the factory closed and there's no other job in their community. That's the toughest problem. But the same is for our kids. We have to do a much better job of preparing the next generation for an economy where they're going to have multiple jobs. I, know, I think Bill's right. Those coordination efforts tend to be, if not complete fool's errands, at least time wasters, where what you really need to do is look at what are the requirements of your society in the future in terms of workforce, and what do you have to do to get there? I mean, one of the key disruptions of that, uh, that globalization that enriched so much of the world, that, that, that resulted in sort of more middle-class people in places like China and India than there are people in the United States. And all that's, all that's a great thing in, term, in terms of the benefits of trade. But at the same time, as, as Richard Baldwin discusses, industrial economy labor lost its monopoly on industrial economy know-how. And they were subject to competitive pressures that weren't there before you could communicate so easily. So life has changed. We've got to deal with the changes in life. There, there are terrific opportunities, but you've got to be prepared for them. And we still, have, we still have people who have jobs in advanced manufacturing that can't fill them. So there's still gaps. And, and for me, I think that's, the, that's where the effort is really deserved. And, and you need tax revenue to do this, obviously, but I, I don't hold out a lot of hope for doing it with a flat corporate tax rate globally. So the, the last trade question is about vaccines. So we hear a lot about vaccine hoarding. The U.S., maybe they're not strictly export controls, but the U.S. is is somehow restricting raw materials and is hoarding uh, vaccines. And now they want to share AstraZeneca because who want wants it. AstraZeneca? So so do you, I mean, do you guys think this is, a, this is a trade issue and is the U.S. doing something wrong here or should it be done differently? Well, look, let's start with what I consider almost miraculous is that we spent... We, we just have this new pathogen that's affecting the world. We, from, we had less than 11 months from, from isolating the genomic sequence of the pathogen to a vaccine in distribution that is 95% effective and safe. 11 months, all right? That is astonishing scientific achievement. The second thing I would note with that is because of massive investments particularly by the U.S. government. You had multiple trials continue at once, and you wound up with three or four successful candidates through the FDA process, all in that very short period of time. So that is, that is a major blessing of living in a, of the modern world. In terms of where the vaccine goes, to me, the problem that is most pressing for most people not vaccinated is how they get the shot in the arm. And it's that last mile distribution that was a challenge in the United States. It's been a challenge elsewhere. And I think less carping about vaccine hoarding and more focus by governments on last mile distribution will get more people vaccinated faster than almost anything we can do. That's that's Europe that's listening. <laughs> Whoever, Europe, Canada. 
okay, which is less than 20% of adults have been vaccinated, even one dose in Canada. So. Yeah, and that, that's, a, that's an interesting example. It's not a poor country. It's not that no, they can't no. afford it, but they don't produce it, and they're scrambling for the resources. I mean, the United States has announced they're sending 60 million doses to, to India, and I assume that that we'll keep our word and do that. The question is, though, at the end, will be will be Scots. They're all going to they're all going to fly in. They're going to land in Mumbai and Delhi. And then what happens to them after the plane lands? And it takes infrastructure to get them out and and to into people. We usually make this expat focus, but since you're both based in in the U.S. and have been for some time, we'll probably try to we're going to switch it around a little bit. Have you been to Staten Island? Uh, my son lives there. It's a little bit like living a chapter of The Sopranos. <laughs> it's a fascinating well, place. That, that's why I left. <laughs> Are you really from there? Uh, yeah, very much so. So I, I lived there until uh, right before I moved to Geneva. He went to college there and and stayed. They're thinking, I mean, he's gotten married, had a kid, and he married somebody who grew up there. They're thinking now about moving, but, I mean, he kind of likes it there, but it's a a very insular place, might be the most tactful thing to say about it. And he knows there's a ferry? (laughs) I'll I'll tell you. Like, yes, he knows there's a ferry, but I can tell you he's a true child of the suburbs, which is where he grew up in suburban Maryland, where, where I live. I was up there for a meeting or a conference, and it was down. It was down on Wall Street. Really, it was right around the corner from from the stock exchange. It was like two, three blocks from the ferry. And he was going to come over and have dinner with me. And he was coming from his office, his the studio where he was working at the time, which was across the street from the other end of the ferry. And he drove free ferry across the street, three blocks, and he chose to drive across the Verrazano Narrows into Brooklyn through the tunnel, and then pay fifty dollars to park down off of Wall Street so he could have dinner with me. Child of the suburbs. Well, I they, miss home. They call it Bridge and Tunnel for a reason. It's not Bridge and Ferry. <laughs> so listen, let's move on to something everybody can, we can all agree on, and that is that Bruce Springsteen is fantastic, especially if you're Chris Christie. On a scale of zero to Bruce Springsteen, how much do you enjoy having your own podcast? Look, this is a lot of fun. And one of the things that it makes it really interesting as a think tank guy is it's the only product that we produce as a think tank that can be consumed by the audience when they're doing something else. Okay. If you attend a seminar, you've got to sit there. If you read a report, you've got to read, but a podcast, you can listen and do whatever you want. And I think that's helped us to reach people that we would not reach by anything else we do. And for me, that's, that's the enjoyment of it. I mean, I like talking to Bill and like, like arguing, but what, what I really like is the idea we're reaching people who wouldn't pay any attention to what we have to say otherwise. There are downsides to that, though. I remember, and Scott knows this story, going to a reception, somebody coming up to me saying, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I listen to it all the time. And so I said, so when do you listen? Because a lot of people listen when they're commuting. And he said, no, no, no. I put the earbuds in when I'm going to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Great. It's nice to know that you're a cure for insomnia. But... uh, Go to sleep with the soothing sounds of trade guys. Yeah, it's I'll tell you, it's, it's one of the most, yeah. it's one of the more fun things I do on the, on the Springsteen scale. I'd say Steven Tyler, not not, <laughs> not Springsteen, but uh, it's a fun thing to do. So we've got a couple of questions we ask every guest. So you guys are there. We got this is a scientific, it's a robust podcast. So have you one of the one of the things that we all do here in Geneva is get our bike stolen it's like the it's like a national pastime so have either of you ever had your bike stolen either in Geneva or anywhere else yes 1978 it was a Raleigh 10 speed made in Great Britain of all things and I was in grad school at the time and I lived in a neighborhood where grad schools grad students could afford to live and so it got stolen never replaced so 
My son, mine was not stolen, my son's was stolen, and it was stolen from inside my house, which was annoying, by a classmate of his. And we ultimately, in relatively short order, we got it back because his father found out about it. But it was annoying at the time. Never visiting Maryland. Since 1978. That's a... Well, you have to watch out for your neighbors. Watch out for the Joneses. Don't worry don't, about... Yeah, exactly. Don't keep up with the Joneses. Just watch out for them. Don't worry about terrorism. Lock your doors. That's what I learned. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the next one we had. So the the national food of Geneva, which is a republic and a canton in Switzerland, is kebab. So uh, it's definitely most kebab. people don't know this, but a lot of people don't know it. Fondue, whatever people say, it's definitely kebab. And there's really only two good kebab here: parfum de Beirut or Alamir or parfum de Beirut. That's basically the only two choices. So have you guys ever? Do you guys have a favorite kebab or globally guilty, or in Geneva or other guilty pleasure or another favorite fast? No, I can't say that I do. Although I, I'm a massive fan of American barbecue and it broadly characterized. That is relatively lousy cuts of meats cooked low and slow. And it's all over the country. It's different everywhere. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, South Carolina is different than North Carolina, different than Kansas City ribs are different than St. Louis ribs. And there's wonderful variations and all of it with real craftsmanship and, 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 and care and preparation. So I'm a huge barbecue fan. In D.C., stop at uh, Hill Country on 7th Street in Penn Quarter. It's real Texas brisket. Now they have to sponsor nice. us. Yeah. It's actually dinner time here, so this is thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah, it's actually a little bit around. So we're suffering. Now. Bill, Bill, what's your kebab story? I really care for them. To be honest with you, I find them generally almost always too dry. Must have had the Kansas City kebab. They're, they're yeah, notoriously the... dry. <laughs> well, I don't have them very often. Uh, send me out to the Eastern Shore and give me Lovely. a bowl of cream of crab soup. That will be live near the bay. Got to take advantage of it. So, last two questions. This is the lightning round. Trader Joe's or Whole Foods? Actually, Wegmans, if I if I could add them, a chain from Buffalo, New York, Old but uh, of the two, Trader Joe's. Hey, I'm a Democrat. Giant food. That's it. Now we're talking. <laughs> Good unionized uh, workers. Excellent. Because we normally, there's a duopoly in Switzerland, so we normally say co-op or migro. So it's definitely, yeah. so that's could, definitely giant food is one of those. For you sure. can tell we've been out of here. Safeway or giant. Safeway I've heard of, giant food never heard of growing up on Staten Island. This is we have Tony Dinapoli's. Yes. Uh, <laughs> It's a neighborhood. It's a neighborhood grocery store. It's very simple. Exactly. We go to the, we go to the shop, as we call it. Uh, so, last question: Hershey's or Lint? I think we know where you're going to answer. I don't even know why we're asking this. Lint. Lint. Oh, whoa. Okay. Even the guy who represented who represented a senator from Pennsylvania took took Lint. Yes. Yes. Uh, Swiss is better, I, I, I think. Given given the option, I'd I'd take Neuhaus. It's Belgian, I know, but, uh, but no, no, definitely Swiss over ooh, Hershey. Ooh, no, 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 no. This is a good that's choice. That's a faux pas. That's a faux pas. <laughs> Sorry, this is a good choice. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Really been fun to talk to you, and I think we're we're learning. I, I've learned a lot, especially you know considering I've been I feel like I've been outside the U.S. for a bit too long now. So it's good to get back, uh, recalibrate, if you will. And then quick, quick plug, where can people listen to your podcast? Thanks for having us on. We're, we're the Trade Guys. Look for the yellow background on Apple Podcasts or, or wherever you get your podcasts or go to csis.org slash podcasts and pick us out of the lineup. Yeah, we have atrocious sort of vomit yellow and black coloring. I think you just described the trade splitting cover. <laughs> This is an American but, thing. But Great it, minds think alike. But it's ours. Exactly. Okay? <laughs> yeah. It's it's not about it's 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 the brand. Just ask Scott. It doesn't yes. matter what the colors are as long as people know it. It's vomit yellow, but it's our vomit it's yellow. It's our vomit yellow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
Well, that about wraps up this special interview episode with the Trade Guys. We want to once again thank Scott Miller and Bill Reins from the Center for Strategic and International Studies for joining us and talking all things U.S. trade policy, also Kansas City. Don't forget to download this episode if you haven't already. Subscribe to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon. Feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Better be positive. And you can also find us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or Instagram at Trade.Splaining. Also, you can email us your questions, comments at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's trade.splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, listen responsibly.